Welcome to Happened Here, people, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Robbie Stamp, host of episode four in our Covent Garden collection, Colonnades and Cabbages, the history of Covent Garden. When did Covent Garden start to look like something we might recognize today? In this episode, we will tell the story of over 500 years of the history of Covent Garden, from the genius of Inigo Jones, the great architect, to the granite colonnades established in the 19th century, to a last-ditch 20th-century battle to prevent the market, piazza and church from disappearing under a sea of concrete. Without further ado, let's begin. Covent Garden Piazza, this beautiful, fruitful rectangle. Written by Robbie Stamp, performed by Stephen Fry. This is fertile land. Standing today, your back to St Paul's Church at the western side of the piazza, looking east, you will see stone arcades, bustling craft market nestled between beautiful mid-nineteenth-century buildings, originally a home for the world-famous fruit and vegetable market, and you will see buskers. It was not always thus. Imagine a beautiful early summer morning in the year 1552. The cobbles and buildings in front of you melt away into rows of vegetables, and a large kitchen garden, still wet with dew, stretches out all around you. No market, no piazza, just forty acres of fruitful soil and the faint scent of chives, fennel, and shepherd's needle. In the distance, working their way along the lines of cherry, apple and pear trees, tending the herb gardens and seeing to the livestock, are the monks who have husbanded and harvested this convent garden on behalf of Westminster Abbey for four centuries. But this day, in 1552, the tranquillity is about to be shattered for ever. John Russell, the first Earl of Bedford has just been granted by royal patent this beautiful, fruitful rectangle, and he plans to build. By the early 1600s, the monk's garden has disappeared beneath a warren of streets lined with terraced buildings, houses four stories high, rough sheds, open sewers run through the streets— the Bedfords have not been ideal stewards of this land. But the fourth earl is a born property developer, and in 1631 Charles I grants a licence to divert roads and pull down old buildings to create a distinguished ornament for London. Given the Bedford's track record, the king makes him pay a hefty contribution to the crown for the privilege. To further appease the crown, Inigo Jones, already the surveyor-general of the royal buildings, is appointed as designer. Jones, who happens to live round the corner in St Martin's Lane, is also 
the greatest English architect of the age. Jones has travelled widely in Europe and is deeply influenced by one of the giants of the Italian Renaissance, Andrea Palladio, who in turn drew inspiration from Greek and Roman architecture. The building of the square introduced the Italian word piazza, meaning a town square to Londoners, houses of red brick in elegant grey stone arcades on two sides, the south side backing on to Bedford House, the western side dominated by St Paul's Church, the piazza's crowning glory. Jones's classically inspired architecture would influence the development of London's squares and grand houses for centuries to come. An engraving, made soon after the square was completed, shows a gracious, flat, central, sandy space, protected by posts, laid out to force carriages to drive around the perimeter of the piazza. Two men on horseback ride past two women out for a stroll. Children are at play with a dog. It is a tranquil scene, and the marquises, earls, countesses, and knights of the realm duly move in. The stage is set, and the coming centuries will see Covent Garden become one of the most fertile, rumbustious, and creative spaces in London. It didn't take many decades for Inigo Jones's new piazza to attract a slightly less elegant crowd, with tranquillity increasingly hard to come by. A fruit and vegetable market appeared that became the dominant presence of the square, and Covent Garden became famous for its cauliflower and cabbages, its coffee houses and brothels. For 200 years, despite attempts to contain it, the market continued to mushroom. By the 19th century, a complete overhaul was required. Covent Garden Piazza A much tidier view for the Duke Written by Joanna Clark Performed by Jasmine Elcock Covent Garden, quite frankly, is a mess. It's 1827 and John Russell sixth Duke of Bedford, stands in the piazza. Before him, a sprawling mass of stalls and overflowing carts, the stench of dung and decaying vegetables, donkeys braying, sellers crying. <laughs> Madness. Things have changed somewhat since his ancestor, the fourth Earl, enlisted Inigo Jones to transform his land into a fashionable residential square 200 years ago. The Earls had been created Dukes in 1694. But, titles aside, after the Bedfords were granted official rights to hold a market in 1670, customongers flocked to hawk their produce, expanding to occupy the entirety of the piazza. Most significantly, control of the booming market had begun to slip away. Successive earls and dukes had made ad hoc attempts to give some order and structural permanence to the ramshackle buildings that first appeared outside Bedford House's garden walls in the 1650s. The house itself was demolished in 1707, making way for more dwellings and through streets. But things had not gone smoothly. 
Exercising lordship over the disorderly and disorganised market was an endless struggle. The sixth duke was constantly taking non-paying tenants and trespassers to court, and an appeal to Parliament in 1813 resulted only in the vague and unhelpful assertion that tolls should be taken as is or are usually taken or collected within the said market. If he wanted to insist on regulated tolls and be assured of their receipt, something had to be done, but a new market building. Being a duke was an expensive business, what with artwork to be collected, estates to be maintained, not to mention a duchess and 13 children to be provided for. His purse strings were rather tight. In 1828, an Act of Parliament cleared the way for the improvement and regulation of the Covent Garden market. Thankfully, by then, Bedford had sold multiple properties on the Strand and could give the green light to architect Charles Fowler. Construction began. Fowler's neoclassical design complemented Inigo Jones's piazza, but it was purpose-built to house the market. Three parallel buildings with outer colonnades were erected in the centre of the square. It was modern, functional, and could not, by any possibility, be mistaken for anything else. Designated spaces for each trader allowed for a simpler and more comprehensive system of rents. The central building provided a covered avenue with shops on either side. These shops catered to retail salesmen looking for more permanent accommodation, whilst two open courtyards met the needs of growers pitching their carts. Each shop had a cellar, a dugout area below the original 17th century flat square. Above the colonnades was a conservatory and two terraces to attract a more superior class of visitors. With the colonnades made of hard granite to survive the scraping of wagons, Fowler's market building was built to endure. And indeed it has. Here's what we still see today. Were you to walk through it towards the northeastern corner and the Royal Opera House, you will see the original schedule of rents and tolls put up with the building itself in 1830. A physical place and landmark, unchanged through to the present and which has proved itself to be readily adaptable to the needs of our own time. Also, a much tidier view for the Duke. Two Unfortunately, Fowler's building offered only a temporary reprieve from the joyful chaos that had characterised Covent Garden's history thus far. The market was soon overflowing again, and as the 20th century arrived, traffic congestion became unbearable. The Dukes of Bedford relinquished their ownership of the estate in 1912, and in 1962, it was bought by the newly established government-owned Covent Garden Authority. The area needed tidying up once more, but this time, Covent Garden's history was at stake. Covent Garden. Concrete Garden, anyone? Written by Joanna Clark, performed by Joanna Lumley. It's the 1st of April, 1971, and 600 people are crammed into the Methodist Kingsway Hall in Covent Garden. As John Toomey, a print worker and local campaigner, rouses the crowd, calls of planning should be about the people ring around the room. What plans, you might ask? 
Well, what had started as a fashionable and innovative piazza, designed in the 17th century by Inigo Jones, had become an internationally famous fruit and vegetable market that has resisted all attempts to impose order on its chaos. Throughout the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries, the market continued to grow in popularity. By the 1970s, motor vehicles and lorries clogged up the narrow streets even more than the previous century's wagons and carts, and costermongers now overflowed into the surrounding area. It was clear that the market needed a new and bigger home. In 1974, it moved out of central London to Nine Elms, across the Thames to South London, where it exists today. But what would become of Covent Garden itself? Would it become Concrete Garden? The Greater London Council's plan that had prompted the Kingsway meeting was as follows. Raise the majority of Covent Garden's historical sites and build an international conference centre surrounded by hotels, offices and raised labyrinthine pedestrian streets inspired by the brutalist architecture of the new Barbican estate in East London. A concrete jungle to tidy up and brush aside over 300 years of history. Unsurprisingly, the plan was not welcomed by residents, who on that night of April 1st, 1971, formed the basis of a Covent Garden Community Association. It would become embroiled in a two-year battle for the area's survival. John Toomey later recounted, We didn't want it turned into office blocks and skyscrapers. We got the people together and we marched to fight our case for Covent Garden because we loved Covent Garden. Residents organised demonstrations, candlelit processions and squatted in historic buildings pegged for demolition as all the while members of the community were slowly and forcibly moved out. In January 1973, the council's plan was finally scuppered when the Secretary of State for the Environment added 250 buildings in the area to a protected list, essentially preventing any large-scale redevelopment. The association had been victorious. Or had it? The buildings and the piazza were preserved, a remarkable success for the community, but Covent Garden is not what it once was. Activists were unable, as one association member put it, to prevent the growth of the candy floss economy that has taken over the square. Today you will find restaurants, bars, big brand shops and tourists. A mixed blessing for locals. Still, one resident shrugged, better than pulling it down and putting up an office block. An evolution, shall we say. A bronze relief plaque on Southampton Street honours all those men and women who bought and sold fresh produce here, depicting a market porter with a stack of baskets on his head, surrounded by the names of 22 market trader families. It's a reminder of the history unknown to many who traverse the cobblestones and listen to street performers in the piazza. With or without its colourful history, Covent Garden remains an integral part of London and a top attraction for visitors and locals alike. Inigo Jones would be pleased. Inigo Jones's ghost can indeed still happily walk the piazza. From monks tending a glorious garden to a purpose-built market, to a community keeping their history alive. If one is inclined to play detective, there are physical clues all over Covent Garden that attest to its rich past. 
happened here, people, places, and the stories they tell. Hi, Joanna Lumley here. Look, I'm just saying how exciting Happened Here is. Great stories, great to work with some marvellous young writers and performers. Why don't you come and join us at happenedhere.com? Come on! But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, the founders, thanks you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah, happened here.